Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. I was reminded this week of the story of um, a letter that a little girl sent her pastor reminded especially with the snow that we've been we've been dealing with and is in the forecast and it feels like it's way too early and this little girl said to her pastor in this letter dear pastor I appreciate your ministry but I still think a lot more people would come to your church if you moved it to Disneyland and so I appreciate today that you are here nonetheless, Sycamore, Illinois, plain old Sycamore, Illinois, where winter is setting in too quickly, and we're just picking up today in our series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. I hope that brings you enough warmth in your life, a, a series that we've been calling Rebuild, in which we've been looking in as God's done just that in the lives of his people. And he's gone about the work of rebuilding his people from the ground up, bringing them back after 70 years in exile to a land that he had promised them to revive their hearts and restore their life. So we've been looking at and we've been looking in because this same God is the one at work in his people today. Isn't that an amazing thing? Looking in at what he's done in the past, confident that this is the same God who does those things today. Similarly, committed to reviving our hearts, to restoring our life. What we're going to consider this morning, though, is not so much God's commitment to us as much as it is we're going to consider our commitment, the commitment that he grows in us, for himself. And we'll do so as we consider Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there again to Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10, to which rather than begin by reading it, I'm just going to draw your attention to, to much of it as we go through. But I don't want to read it just yet. Instead, let's, before we dive in, just pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a, a weighty matter that we're going to be considering today of our commitment and recommitment to you. And I pray in that that we would take seriously where such a commitment begins and where in and of ourselves it ends. And the fact that we can only commit so much which falls so far short of what is necessary. Which is why I pray alongside that, that in making that commitment to you, it would drive us once again to lean entirely on the commitment that you have made in your son Jesus Christ to us. I pray as we're going to sing in just a little bit that we would stand on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness that we would not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, in whose name we even dare to pray. Amen. Well, the man I admire most outside the men of my own family, the man of Catherine's family, is a gray-haired man who's been married now 
for some 50 years. And he and his wife are the picture of fidelity in love as any two people could be devoted to one another in a way that every, all couples should be and faithful as you'd hope all of us would be. And for my own part, he's in a lot of ways the, the, the picture of the man I want to be. Simply exuding that, that, that spark that's driven me on several occasions to get up again and, and go after just a taste of what I've seen in his life. But what you see today is not what always was. Because this gray-haired man whose smile seems to suggest that he's simply content with life, at one point had almost lost it. See, in the midst of climbing the corporate ladder, the chairing the elder board at his church, he got to a, a point where he was a little too big for his britches and began to, to look at the good life more as something that he had earned for himself than as a grace that he had been given. And rather than steward what he had, he, he went after what he didn't and, and came pretty close to throwing it all away. Not the least of which was the fact that he almost lost his dear wife. Because he had broken that faith and had slipped into infidelity. And had flushed that marital commitment down the proverbial pipes. So what do you do? What do you do when you've thrown it all away? When you haven't lived up to your end of the bargain? What do you do when you've fallen so far short of what you committed that there's nothing left to redeem? Well, you do the only thing you can do. You throw yourself at the mercy of the one you've offended. And you recommit yourself, if they'll have you, to doing it again. Which, left to ourselves, is not all that different than when we fell short in our relationship to begin with. When we fell short in our relationship with God. That what do you do when you've flushed that commitment down those same pipes? Well, left to yourself, you do the only thing you can. You recommit to doing it again, which is what these two chapters are focused on today. That may not seem all that encouraging. We'll get there. But it's what these two chapters are focused on today, what that recommitment looks like in especially, particularly, this relationship with God, which I want to suggest from this passage ought to begin with confession and end with covenant. That left to ourselves, on our side of the ledger, recommitment begins with confession and ends with covenant. First, that commitment or recommitment begins with confession, which is what we see in Nehemiah chapter 9, and, and really what's going to take the bulk of our time this morning. Again, that recommitment begins with confession. 
Let me just set the scene a bit by reminding you of what's led up to this moment in Nehemiah of God's people recommitting themselves to God. Because it's important to see that it really began with God and how he once again in the details of history proved his commitment to them. And that's important because the fact is we only ever have an opportunity to turn back to God because God hasn't first turned away from us. Amen? That's a good thing and hasn't tossed us to the curb like a finicky, unreliable, broken down toaster is what I'm going to say. Toaster. He has not kicked us to the curb like a finicky, unreliable, broken down toaster. The broken down toasters that we are, right? Right? Have you ever dealt with a broken down toaster? I've been scratching my head over one recently. I mean, it has one job. It has one job to do, but all it does is burn the bread on one side of it and leave the other one completely untouched. It has one job. What do you do with a toaster like that? You kick it to the curb. You kick it to the curb. You let the guy come by with the scrap metal truck and take your toaster for whatever he can get for it. But not God. What does God do? Not with the toaster. What does he do with his people? Because remember, they, they had one job too. His people have one job to be his people, to worship him and him alone. What does God do when they don't? Well, if you remember the story, he brings them back. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah is all about. God bringing them back over a period of a hundred years, turning one king's heart after another and providing in the face of great opposition, first for the rebuilding of the altar, then second for the rebuilding of the temple, and third for the rebuilding of the city walls. And God was the one who had done it because of God's commitment to his people. Which leads then then to recommit themselves to God. And particularly after the preaching of the word, right? That's what the effect of the preaching of the word is supposed to have. Because that's what kicks revival off, the preaching of the word, with the hearing of it and the doing of it. The doing which emphasizes this very point that we can turn back to God. Why? Because God never turned away from us. Because don't you think that was what was going through their minds as they celebrated that feast of booths? If you were here last week, right? Don't you think that's what was going through their minds as they did the word? That was chapter 8, right? The preaching of the word and the doing of it, which led them to the celebration of that feast where they were celebrating that time that God hadn't left their ancestors in a foreign land some thousand years before. Now they're sitting in these huts that they've built, these booths that they've built, thinking to themselves, hmm, God didn't leave us either. So they turn to commit and recommit themselves to God. Well, what does that look like? It begins with confession. 
Because no one ever comes to a commitment like that with a blank slate. You can't. It's just a fiction of our imagination because we're already toasters that have failed to do the one job we were supposed to do. So recommitment always begins with confession, with an acknowledgement and admission and admitting that we've already failed before we even knew we were being tested. We haven't done a lot of tests with Emmett. I was testing him the other day. He failed before he even got started because he didn't even know he was being tested. Which is why if you look there at Nehemiah chapter 9, starts out with this assembly gathered on the 24th day of the month, it says, with the people of Israel fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Which is not a pretty picture. But it's because they realize that before they even get the chance to commit themselves, they've already failed in that commitment to begin with. We already, by nature, are following after other gods. It reminds me of when I was a kid and my uh, parents would line us up after we had done something wrong for doing who knows what, and they would march us one by one into their bedroom to uh, be spanked. I know we, we, some of us, we don't do that anymore, but, but they would march us into the bedroom one by one to be spanked. And I remember one time that my older sister and I had done something, and my younger sister thought that she was being left out of it for some reason. And so as soon as we emerged, she waddles right past us and into the bedroom to get her spanking. And my dad did it because even though she was surprised, she had in fact, even at that young age, racked up a tally of things that she deserved to be punished for. My dad figured even if he didn't know what they were, right? Even before we Begin. Well, but you see the Israelites sitting here with sackcloth and, and mourning. Here sits God's people. Well, what do they do? It says in verse 2 that the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Not foreigners because this is a race issue. This is a religion issue. This is who you're following and how, how, how mingling with those who were, who were following after other gods had, had led God's people to do the same. They, they separate themselves and they confess their sins and they stood up, it says, and read from the book of the law of their God for a quarter of the day. They had their six-hour Bible conference a couple days before this. This is the three-hour version. They read from the, the law of the Lord for a quarter of the day, and for another quarter of it, they made confession. And it says they worshiped the Lord their God. Because again, commitment begins when it's a, a, a commitment to God. Commitment begins with confession. Which, notice, is an act of worship. This is the toaster doing what the toaster was made to do. Ironically, by confessing that it hasn't always done it like it should have. And I want to just point out to you a couple of the nuances of this confession that are particularly helpful for us as we think through what confession looks like in our own day. Beginning with the fact that these Israelites use the goodness of God to highlight the badness of their sin. 
Nothing like piling it on when, when something's gone bad, but, but that's what they do. And, and do it principally by, again, highlighting God's goodness to his people in history. So that, in effect, the effect is, is that their badness even appears badder or, 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 or more bad, as our kids sort of struggle to make sense of what word do you throw in there. It, it appears even badder or more bad because of God's goodness. So in verse 6, they highlight God's work in creation. You see it there? That you are the Lord, they say, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. God, God's goodness in creation. Right? Nothing like calling to attention why you ought to be following God in the first place. Because God's the one that made this world, not you. And he knows a little better how it is best for you to operate within it. They highlight God's goodness in creation. But look at verse 7. God also has been good in the calling of Abraham. That you also, they say, are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham, Father Abraham, that you found his heart faithful, they say, before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous in creating the world and calling Abraham then in caring for the Israelites and you can read about it beginning in verse 9 seeing their affliction verse 9 and taking on their enemy verse 10 of dividing the Red Sea verse 11 and going down before them verse 12 in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and then verse 13, and coming down on Mount Sinai and speaking to them from heaven and giving them, listen to this, right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. Man, we don't think of the law of God like that. We don't think of it like that. True, good, right. But it's God's goodness in creation and the calling of Abraham and the caring for Israel. But notice, what's the point, verse 16, that the Israelites highlight here God's goodness in history to emphasize the badness of their own sin, which isn't an over-exaggeration. It's just them being honest with the situation. How much worse in light of what God has done? So they say, verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But what? Instead, they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. The goodness of God, which highlights all the more the badness of his people. No attempt to whitewash their failings or to compare themselves to those around them, to say, at least we're not as bad as the guys you just drowned in the Red Sea. No, but to say in comparison to you, look at what we've done. 
And they go on in that way to point to God's goodness and guiding them through the wilderness, giving them the promised land, granting them one Savior after another, the cycle of the judges. All to highlight, like in verse 26, that delighting themselves in your great goodness. See in the verse before that? Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. Can you imagine what you would do if your kid did that? Took your direction to them, took your, took your, your command to them to go clean their room, to go tidy up their mess, the mess that they made, just threw it behind their back. Can you imagine? It says they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. And the ones confessing on behalf of their forefathers, they go so far as to say that it's their badness too. They don't shy away from this. Like in verse 33, that yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Again, because in this confession, the goodness of God is used by God's people to emphasis, emphasize the badness of God's people. And most specifically, notice their badness in relationship to him. Do you notice that? It's not like, oh, I didn't, quite get it right with my kids this week. Oh, I didn't quite get it right with my spouse. Oh, I fudged a little at work. No, it's badness in relationship to him. Because it's really the heart of all badness, right? That's, that it's in the end, a badness against God. That, that before breaking any other commandment, we've already, by definition, broken the first commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. To be the toasters we were made to be. But that in reality, just burn everything that's put into him. But notice also that God's people highlight in their confession the goodness of God in the past not only to emphasize their badness in the present, but also to ground their hope in God's goodness for the future. So that it's because of God's unrelenting goodness in spite of them that they even dare to come back to him. You ever think about that? That the only reason we can turn to God is because in his grace, he's there to be turned to. You might not get the rest of, of the, the intricacies of, of God's sovereignty, human responsibility, grace preceding works, but at least you can recognize that God is there to be turned to, that he has given you one more breath. He has given this world one more tick of the clock when it doesn't deserve it. Look at it. So they say, midway through verse 17, though their forebearers stiffened their neck, but you, you are a God ready to forgive, 
gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is God's self-declaration of who he is from all the way back in Exodus. You are a God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And even when they made a golden calf, in verse 19, you see it there, you in your great mercies, they say, did not forsake them in the wilderness. So that to the nevertheless of verse 26, the nevertheless they were disobedient, can be added now the the nevertheless of verse 31. That nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So that ultimately this people has the audacity based on that to ask after it. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Not little to him? As if they somehow paid the price for their disdain and disregard and disparagement of him? Surely they deserve more just like each and every one of us does. But because of God's goodness in the past, they dare to hope, even in their confession, that he might again be good to them in the future. Confessing, not that they deserve his goodness, far from it, but in that confession, hoping in his goodness nonetheless. This is where commitment or recommitment begins with confession that we haven't done what we were supposed to do, that we haven't honored God like he deserves and and placed God above ourselves on the throne of our lives. It begins with confession and ends with covenant that left to ourselves on our side of the ledger, having failed to do it before, we will nonetheless recommit, we'll covenant, we'll pledge and promise to doing those things again. Which may not seem blessedly hopeful for this people who had already failed in that commitment how many times before. They've got a worse track record than a political pundit or candidate in an election year. But let's at least follow where this leads because this is where they go. Even in verse 38 of chapter 9, you can see it there, that because of all this, their badness, God's goodness, they say we make a firm covenant in writing. And the names of those who who signed it, their leaders and Levites and priests are are listed there in chapter 10. But look at verse 28 because this is the the part that you've got to pay attention to. When they say, the, the rest of the people, look at it there, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, 
all who have knowledge and understanding, together, as one, listen to it, they say, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Which when they enumerate them, if you're just going to read on, basically fall into two categories. Commandments, statutes, rules related to law-keeping and those related to housekeeping. Law-keeping in the next few verses and then housekeeping related to the, the keeping of God's house in verses 32 to the end of the chapter, which closes there in verse 39. You can see it with these words. We will not neglect the house of our God. And both aspects of the, the covenant are significant, the law-keeping and the house-keeping. The, the law-keeping because this is how we are supposed to live with God, and the housekeeping because this is how we provide for God living with us. It's important. But I want to focus on that statement again in verse 28 and 29. Because at the end of the chapter, at the end of chapter 9, you saw it there, they say, therefore, we make a covenant in writing. We make a legally binding agreement. We cut a contract, is what it says. Like, like the, those covenants that God had cut with Abraham and Moses. But when it gets to spelling out what that covenant looks like in chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, Notice that the people are no longer talking about cutting a covenant, but rather about entering into a curse and an oath. Find that interesting? Entering into a curse and an oath. I find it interesting because I don't know how enthusiastic I'd be about signing my name to a curse. I know that's maybe seems odd in our day and age. I don't think I'd do it anyway. I mean, I'm not even all that superstitious when it comes to this kind of stuff, and I, I don't put a lot of stock in some person's power over the dark realm of witchery, not to deny the spiritual battle that wages among us. I'm convinced of that more now than ever, but, but I'm not all that superstitious. I'm just saying that I'm not typically afraid of some individual and, and what they cast as a curse. But this ain't just some individual. This is God. And God can curse who he wants. I will give him that. And yet into this curse and this oath, his people enter, notice, to walk in God's law and to observe and do all, all the commandments, all the rules, all the statutes. But why? Why? Given all the times that they failed, all the times they had the chance to fail before, would you have done it? Why? 
Because what else are you going to do? What else is there? When you've broken the commitment and you've already fallen so far short, what else is there when left to yourself on your side of the ledger except to throw yourself on whatever terms necessary at the mercy of the one you've offended? Because there's no bargaining with God, right? You can't fix a better set of terms. And if the, the threat of a curse, which you are sure to bring down on your head, if the curse is the only way to recommit yourself and enter once again in full view of your confession back into covenant relationship with your God, that God can do to you what he wants because surely you deserve it and will deserve it soon. Still, better to be in the covenant with the curse hanging over your head than to be outside the covenant where the curse is going to find you anyway. Because at least within the covenant, there is the slightest possibility that this God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who did not forsake his people in the past, there's at least the slightest chance that while we can, can't negotiate a, a better contract for ourselves, that he will choose to set those terms himself. Which, lo and behold, as the story plays out, thank God, beyond the pages of Nehemiah, lo and behold, he's done in the sending of his son. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, that for all who rely on works of the law, they are under that curse. Why? Because Paul says the law is not of faith. Rather, Paul says the one who does them, these works of the law, shall live by them or die by them. Just like the people say in Nehemiah. It's the same verse they quote out of Leviticus. But Christ, Paul says, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So that in Christ, it is not simply us anymore left to ourselves. Or simply our side of the ledger. Because if we confess our sins and our, our shortcomings and recommit ourselves to a covenant we cannot keep and declare in faith that it is better to be cursed within the covenant of God than outside it to receive that curse nonetheless, it is then that God seals us in a new covenant that he keeps on our behalf. 
covenant built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That, that when darkness veils his lovely face, we can yet rest upon his grace. That despite the high and stormy gales, our anchor holds within the veil. That one day dressed in his righteousness alone, will stand faultless before the throne. Why? Well, in part, because after the preaching of the word and an encounter with God's grace, we too, like God's people before us, recommit ourselves to him, beginning with confession and ending with a renewal of that covenant. Let me leave you with two thoughts then. One regarding confession, the other with regard to this covenant. First, with regard to confession, which many scholars say is one of the defining characteristics of all the great revivals in the history of our faith. A growing disdain for and inability to abide with our own sinfulness and a willingness to own that and to then turn from it. They say that all the great revivals in the history of our faith share that fruit. But apart from what God might do in us as a people or, or with his church within our country or as a people around the world, let me encourage you in light of that, just on a personal level, and in light of this passage, and indeed, the, the centrality of confession at the heart of our faith. Let me just encourage you to make it and its necessary end, repentance. Make that the mark of your life. Oh, a willingness to name the shortcomings and, and to turn away from them and to throw yourself because of them at the mercies of the one you've sinned against. To never tire of it and always come back. It was Martin Luther who opened the Reformation with the nailing of the 95 theses onto the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. And do you remember the first of those theses? Do you remember it? The one that set the Reformation on fire. The first one was, our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, one of confession. This is what all of life is meant to be. But why was that first? Why was that the first on his list of these odd 95? Some are incredibly odd statements that Martin Luther nailed to this door wanting to, to, to pick the fight and have the debate. Why is this the first one? Because it's the clearest sign that we are being conformed into the character of Christ. A dissatisfaction with where we are, a willingness to name it and do so amongst our brothers and sisters in the faith, and a longing to turn from it. 
And I'd invite you, even today, if you're going to be in a home group late, later or, or, or this week at the men's or women's Bible studies, I'd invite you, I'd encourage you, press in on this with each other and offer each other a redemptive context in which to do that. To name where you are struggling the most. Is it your marriage? Is it in the stewarding of your finances? Is it in the, the, the dark secrets of your day-to-day -day when you leave this place and wait till next week to return? Name it. Name it with one another. Name what you are struggling with most, not so it can be held over your head, but so that you can find freedom from its clutches. And let the goodness of God in the details of history, just like it did for the Israelites before, magnify just how heinous that sin really is. And help each other see that. Again, not to beat each other the head with, but rather to gain a sense of the bitterness of sin. So confess. Make confession a part of your life, your everyday life with your brothers and sisters in the faith. But second, with regard to the covenant, look through the covenant of the curse to Christ. And I know that sounds trite maybe after all of that, but really, this is the point. Isn't this the point? Because we still live with the sin. We still struggle with the sin, with our failed attempts at living for God. And, and you know it in your own heart. Even if you never admit it to anybody else. I know it for myself. I know my struggles. But the hope that the, the cycle will continue between failed commitment and recommitment between covenant breaking and covenant renewal and that God will in his mercy just continue to look away because that's the kind of God he is. That without Christ doesn't stand a chance. The cycle will be called to account if all you do is look at the covenant that you renew by yourself on your side of the ledger and it will crush you but look through that look through that and look to Christ it's a different story because it must end the God looking away from sin he cannot do that for the entirety of history he can't do it why because God as the Levites say in chapter 9 God is what righteous but what kind of God lets the guilty go unpunished? What kind of God looks away forever? A wicked and heartless God who isn't righteous at all. But where do we look if we are guilty ourselves? If the day of reckoning is coming, if we are weighed down day after day and falling into the same sins that have entrapped us for years, we must look to Christ through the curse to the curse born on the cross. Because there God both preserved his righteousness and won for us a righteousness 
not our own. Through the cross, we can see the day approaching. Beyond the cross, when Christ will be crowned once for all. And the punishment and the presence and the power of sin will be eradicated for good. So it is only in looking to the cross that we can even bother to recommit ourselves in the hope that someday God's going to take care of what only God can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is hidden from our eyes the deep cracks and crevices of the lives represented even in this room. We cannot see into the nooks and the crannies. We sometimes can't even see into the nooks and crannies of our own lives. We ask that even today, though, that you would begin a work to unearth the deep-seated sin in our lives. Not because that is the end, but because throwing off everything that hinders, we can look forward to a better day when it will be no more. I pray you would give us courage to confess to one another, courage to hear the confessions of others, courage to point and be pointed to Christ even as we look forward to his return. For joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H Bible.org.